0: We want to get into the Word of the Lord here this morning. If you would turn with me once again to 1 Peter chapter 2, and then we're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Peter chapter 2, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. And then turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 20. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20 Bible says, for you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, amen. So today we are continuing on in our series that we've entitled Living in Truth, Um, and this is part two of. Our first lesson entitled, Your New Life. Let's let's put our Bibles down, lift our voices, lift our hands. Let's talk to the Lord. I need the Lord's touch today. Would you pray for me today? I need his help. Let's talk to the Lord together, everyone. Jesus. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, praise God. Why don't we praise the Lord together for just a moment, everybody? Before you're seated, let's praise Him together. Let's give God some worship in this house. Come on, let's give Him some worship in this house. He deserves the very best that we can give. He deserves the very best that we can give to Him. Praise God. Praise God, praise God, amen, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. I will take just a few moments, hopefully just a few moments, to give you a brief review just to bring everyone up to speed as to where we were last Sunday as we discussed this spiritual parallel between a natural birth and a spiritual birth. And uh, we talked about that if it were possible for us to understand the birthing process from the perspective of that infant, if somehow that child had complete understanding of what was going on. And uh, we, we just thought about, talked about what it would be like from their perspective, how traumatic the entire situation would be for them, and all that they had been through, and and trying to consider the sights and sounds of all that was going on around them, and how confusing it would have to be to their minds to enter into this brand new world, and and uh, to, to 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 be breathing now the fresh air and seeing the bright lights and people around them crying and and uh, and 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 happy and rejoicing and all of the emotions that are being expressed that we talked about what a parallel that really is for a person who's coming into the church Uh, sometimes those of us that have been around the church for a while tend to forget what that experience was really like and we forget about uh, the newness and the wonder of it all and in fact if you were raised around the church then it's really difficult for you to understand when someone comes in off the street and they really don't understand uh, the apostolic people and our strange ways of doing things they don't comprehend what's going on in the altar we know we get excited we get happy uh, we might be crying we might be dancing but they don't understand all of this many times unless they've been coming for a while but But we all know we've seen people walk in and their very first night, God fill them with the Holy Ghost, they don't understand anything that's going on around. They don't understand the process. And and quite honestly, even sometimes for years afterwards, there are things that we still have not quite come to understand. And that's really the purpose of this entire series of study that we're going to be embarking on in this year 2023 is we want to try to give a a real understanding of what really what living in the truth really means. What does it mean to be a child of God? What is this experience that we have? What does God expect out of us? What is God looking for out of our lives? Because let me tell you something, the world has twisted the perspective of salvation they really have. And to the world, it's just a matter of if you'll just believe or you'll confess then everything's all right, you're going to go to heaven, go directly to heaven, do not pass go, do not collect $200. I mean, it's just, it's a done deal. You couldn't be lost if you wanted to. Now, that's the way they teach it. They really do. They believe that once you're saved, you're always saved and it's forever settled and there's no chance of being lost. Now, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, I submit to you that there's only one book in the Bible that really tells you exactly how to be saved. All right. Come on now. All right. And yet, you think about, there are 27 books in the New Testament. All right? You know that, right? Some of you didn't know that. You should know that. Uh, look, this is, this is old, but this will help you remember for Old Testament. Do you know how many books are in the Old Testament? This is really easy. It's, it's, yeah, there, there, are, there are 39 books in the Old Testament. And here's why this is so easy to remember is because there are three letters in the word old and nine letters in the word testament. makes it easy for us. And uh, so then when you get to the New Testament, you do it a little differently. There are three letters in the word new, nine letters in the word testament. But now you multiply them. And Three times nine is 27. And so you have 27 books in the New Testament. Right? That's, it's really pretty easy if you'll use that little uh, mnemonic device. Um, you can remember that. So there's 27 books in the New Testament. Four of them are the Gospels. Talk about the life of Jesus Christ begins somewhere around his birth, ends somewhere around his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, they are the biographies of Christ. And so you've got those four books. Then you've got the book of Acts. And it's the only book in the Bible that tells us exactly how to be saved. It's the only book where you find the disciples, the apostles of the Lord, Preaching to lost people, telling them what to do to be saved. All right, so that's five of the 27. So, real quick, where's my math genius? How many books do we have left? 22. Now, if you'll take out of those 22, one, the book of Revelation that talks about things that are yet to come, we don't really remove that altogether because it kind of fits into the category I'm about to discuss. but even if you take that one out, how many do we have left now? 21. And so there are there, there is one book that tells us how to be saved. And 21 after that. What are those 21 telling us? How to stay saved. Evidently it's a lot harder to stay saved than it is to be saved. Hallelujah. And that's why we've got all of these books, all of these epistles or letters that tell us what God expects of us and how He expects us to live. If it was just a matter of just accept Christ and it's over with, once saved, always saved, even if it was Acts 2.38, once saved, always saved, there would be absolutely no purpose. For the epistles. There'd be no need for them. You're just saved. But the apostles saw a need and felt prompted of the Holy Ghost to write and tell us what God expects out of us after we're saved. Because God does have some expectations. Praise God. In fact, this is, this is the term I, I recently heard, and I really like this term, and I've, I've used it. I've, I've talked, obviously, my, my mind is kind of stuck on archaeology at the moment. And um, <laughs> Agatha Christie, who was a famous um, author of, of uh, mysteries, she was married to an archaeologist, and someone asked her, said, "What's it like being married to an archaeologist? She said, "It's wonderful because the older I get, the more interested he is in me." <laughs> <laughs> oh, um. Anyhow, somehow I um. I, I I've kind of I've heard this term recently, and I, I really like it. But we've been discussing a lot in our M M&M and class, and even in some of my messages. Uh, how that there are so many skeptics out there that do not want to believe that the Bible is true. And the reason they don't want to believe it is because if the Bible's true, then there's a God. And if there is a God, he has a moral claim to your life. That's what they don't want. They don't want the constraints of scriptural morality. Unfortunately, there are a lot of so-called Christians that say they believe the Bible. But they don't want the constraints of scriptural morality either. Let's just love everybody. You know, to, to hear some Christians, you would think there's really only one verse in the entire Bible. Judge not that you be not judged. Because as soon as you bring up something that the Bible says, then their answer is, judge not. You're judging me. Well, I'm not judging you. The Bible is judging you. The Word of God is judging you. And like it or not, that's going to be the final decision on your life. So God has a moral claim to our life and therefore it's important that we learn what living for Him is all about. This is the reason that I've included as our text 1 Corinthians 6 and 20 that you're bought with a price. Do you understand the significance of that? You have been paid for in full. You do not belong to yourself. As much as we don't like to hear it, you don't get to call the shots in your life. I know that's contrary to modern wokeness. But it's a fact. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You belong to God. And therefore God has a right to tell you how to live. He has an expectation. There are things He wants from you because He paid for you. Look, let's understand it from the real perspective. Every one of us were sinners. And we were headed for death. For the soul that sinneth, it shall die. We're talking now not about a natural death, but about a spiritual death, about eternal separation from God. That's where every one of us were headed. And there was only one thing that could pay the price. The shedding of blood. But the shedding of animal blood did not fully pay the price. All it did was 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 kind of give you a postponement. It, it just put the bill off for another year. But the bill was still standing. And the only way that we are able to escape this impending spiritual doom was through the blood of Jesus Christ. When He gave His life for us, He bought us, paid for us in full. See yourself as a slave on the auction block. That every other bidder for your life was going to put you to death. But one stepped up and bought you. And the only reason you don't die is because you've become His property. Therefore, He gets to tell us how to live. He paid for our life. Right? He paid the price for our life. Therefore, He gets to say how we should live. Well, praise God. And and, you know, look, we live live in an age, again, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but we live in such an age that even today parents have, have reached this point. Well, I'm not going to make demands on my children I'm gonna let them decide let me tell you that as a parent it's your obligation to decide for them until they reach an age where they are on their own well my amens are getting fewer These parents that say, I'm not going to force a religion on my kids. I'm going to let them decide. No, you've got an obligation while they are under your roof. Because you see, Jesus bought you. And again, if we think in terms of a slave owner, if that slave has children, The children belong to the slave owner too. And you have to raise those children to please the owner. You don't let them decide. You decide for them. And let me tell you that as you decide for them, what you're doing is you're creating road signs in the path of their life. So that when they're on their own, they know which direction to go. If you're going to be one of these wishy-washy parents that says, Well, I'm just going to let them decide. I'm going to let them decide. Look, if you're going to do that, when they get on their own, they're not going to know which way to turn. Because as a child, they don't know how to make the right decisions. You get them up on Sunday morning and say, You're going to church. You get them down beside their bed and say, you're going to pray. You get the Bible out and say, you're going to read this. That's your job as a a parent. Make those decisions for them until they are of an age where they can rightfully make them on their own. Now, I want to tell you, there's no magic switch at the age of 18 that guarantees they're going to make the right decision. I wish there was. I I understand much more today than I did when he first told me, but I will never forget Bishop Howard making a statement to me. He said, "I, I used to think that once my kids were out on their own, I would worry about them less. He said, the fact of the matter is, I worry about them more now than I ever have. Because while they were at home, I got to make the decisions for them. Now that they're on their own, I have to sit back and watch when they make really bad decisions. And I can't do anything about it. I'm so far off the subject today, but I don't apologize for where I'm at or what I'm saying. You know... There's a scripture that we've really misunderstood from the book of Proverbs that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. And for years, people have used that to say, well, you know, I raised my kid in the church, and and so they may be away from God today, but they will come back. God promised they'll come back. But, But I think all of us know people that were raised in the church who did not come back. See, we've misunderstood that scripture. When you really study that scripture out, the word that's used there for train is is, is a Hebrew word that gives the implication of touching the palate. And and, and what that means is these, these Hebrew moms, when when they were raising their kids, as they were weaning them from the bottle, they didn't have jarred baby food. They didn't they couldn't, you know, go down to Price Chopper and get. apricot gerbers i mean it, you know that was not it was not an option and, and so what they would do is they would chew the food up they would grind it with their teeth and chew it up to very small little pieces and then reach back put it on their finger reach back to the very tip of the child's palate and touch the palate With this food. And what that would do is it would start creating an appetite for that food. You're teaching the child to like this food. When all they've had is milk, you teach them how to like the taste and the texture of a solid food. All right? So think about that scripture again in terms of touching the palate. What, what, this, what the writer is really telling us is it's your job as a parent to create an appetite in your child for the right things. And if you create the appetite for the right things, that doesn't mean there's not going to be a day that they go off and start eating the wrong things. But that appetite will always be present And they're never really going to be satisfied with anything other than what mama taught them to love. Well, praise God. That's the way we need to look at that verse. And that's the way we ought to look at raising children. What our job is as a parent is to create an appetite for the things of God. Teach them to love the house of God. Teach them to love prayer. Teach them to love Bible reading. Teach them to love godly music. Don't just hand them an iPad and let them watch whatever they want to watch. Don't plop them down in front of a television and say, Here, let this be your babysitter for a while. I know it's easier on you. But not in the long run. Because that television is going to be wetting their appetite for things. And they may be pulling things up on YouTube that may wet their appetite for the wrong things. Well... And so I'm telling you, it's your job as a parent to teach them what to like and not like. It's your job as a parent to teach them what to love and what to hate. Create an appetite in them. And the same thing is true, again, I, I'm, Lord, I'm so far off my, not, not really off the topic, but I'm going to bring it back to the topic same thing is true of us as spiritual adults. When we've got new spiritual children among us, you know what our job is? Our job is to whet their appetite for spiritual things. When we come into church for pre-service prayer, you know what we established saints ought to do? We ought to get in here and really pray the glory down. Because that will whet the appetite. Those new ones that come in, they may not understand it. They may not understand the depth of prayer that we reach, but they're going to like what they feel. And we are whetting their appetite. So they say, you know, I don't know how to pray like that, but I sure want to learn. You know what ought to be going on while the singing's going on? We shouldn't be sitting there yawning and watching our, our clocks and, and, and sending out text messages and playing gucci-goo with the babies and, and, and what, you know that, that's not what, what we need to do is we need to be wetting the appetite for the younger ones around us. We ought to show them that there's nothing better than raising our hands, clapping our hands, running the aisles, dancing, shouting, jumping. We need to be creating an appetite in the younger ones. Fortunately, many times for younger ones, it's it's almost the opposite. They come in, they're fired up, they're ready to go. And then they feel hampered because the more quote unquote mature saints are far more reserved. And we don't worship as vibrantly as they feel. But they're going to look around at us. Yes, sir. Well. Yes, sir. Hallelujah. Not one bit of this is in my notes. But it's all in my heart. Come on, yes, sir. Hallelujah. This is our job. Look. Somehow church. I know. I know. I am battling. I am battling. Years, years of the wrong mindset being drilled into people. For years, for decades, it's been all about me. Brother Glenn and I were talking uh, the other night about the 1960s. And I know that's, that's ancient history for some of you young whippersnappers. It's prehistoric times for some of you. Because it's certainly before your history, right? So it's pre your history. But it's not pre my history. And I'm telling you, I remember the drastic change that started taking place in the 60s. And then was escalated in the 70s. And, and everything started changing to where entire generations were raised that it's all about me. It's all about me. It's what makes me happy. And now that's what we have to battle when we come into the church. And so, so what I started to say a while ago, one of the things that, that this um, looking at me and, and focusing on me has, has done to the church in a negative respect is that we come to church Most of the time thinking, what am I going to get out of this service? Boy, I need God today. I sure need a touch today. I sure need something from God today. And we walk in the church house focused on ourselves. Well, it's the truth. Well, I'm not feeling great today. Well, I'm not, in, not really encouraged today. Well, I'm this, I'm that. So I need God. I need, I need God to help me. Yes, we all need God to help us. But somehow we got to get beyond this selfish mindset and realize if, if we, whether we consider ourselves established saints or not, if a new person walks through the doors and they see us sitting here, they're going to think that we're mature saints. And they're going to look to us as their example. And if we set like dime store Indians, that's, that's not woke, is it? Like wooden Native Americans, that's probably not woke either. They probably got rid of all of those. Some of you don't even know what a dime store is. I mean, we've gone from... from dime stores to dollar tree right that's that's 10 times what you know they used to talk about dime stores you don't even find a dime store anymore you can't do anything with a dime anymore um but but a lot of these old corner pharmacies whatever would would have a literally a wooden indian carved standing outside i I don't know what the purpose for it was, but it was there. But uh, anyhow, I'm just old enough to remember some of that. And so when I talk about sitting like a dime store Indian, that's what I'm talking about. Like you're just some figure carved out of wood that never moves. Somehow that's how some of us are in the house of God. And it shouldn't be that way. Whether we feel like worshiping or not, we've got to remember, I've got to create an appetite. Now look, I'm not trying to throw my parents under the bus, but the fact is I hate asparagus. I there's just not there are not many greens that I like. I like watermelon. It's only green on the outside. I like green apples. Um, but there are not very many greens I like. But but let me tell you, really, the fact is my parents never made me eat them. So if your kids don't like them, that, that there's a good possibility that it's because you didn't make them eat those greens. And maybe they never watched you eat them. And, and my point is simply this, when new people, church, we've got to get out of this me first mindset. We've got to think about others. We really do. We've got to get a mindset where we're thinking about everybody else. And whether we feel like worshiping or not, we got to get our hands in the air because somebody here may be looking at us as an example. Whether we feel like it or not, we're gonna to have to clap because somebody may be watching us saying, you know, that's an established saint right there. And they they, they don't think it's important to clap, so I, I guess it's not important. Well, I've never seen them run the aisles, so I guess no need to do it. I've never seen them dance, I've never seen them jump. Never seen them show any emotion, so I guess I guess there's really no need for me to do that. We need to be thinking about wetting the appetite of those that are spiritually younger than us. Our whole attitude toward the kingdom of God, toward the work of God, toward the house of God. Everything we do, we've got to think about somebody else. Well, praise God. I, um, you know, I've, I've mentioned before. We, we get so we get so stuck in our ruts. We're, we're, we have to sit in this seat. This is where we always sit, and this becomes our place, right? But I want you to think about something. I want you to think about the guest that walks in the door. And, and you know, we, we've, we've come through uh, some flu seasons, and, and so flu season hits, and you've got half the church out sick, and, and some guest walks through the door, and there's an entire section of pews where nobody's sitting there. How does that guest feel? There's another section that, you know, is half full. What does, what does the guest think? Rather than get so stuck in our little seat, when we come in and we sit down, we get ready for service to start, look around and say, you know what? There's some holes that need to be filled. I'm just going to move over to this spot because I'd like to fill these holes here. I've honestly, I've been in some services. I remember some years ago uh, being in a service, and it, it 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 seemed like everybody was sitting. If I remember right, to my left, and and there were just a few people scattered in the, in. The, and I felt like the whole church was going to end up falling over if 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 something didn't happen. And uh, you know, I'm I'm thinking about some of my trips that I've made to Africa, and they've literally told us. They said, "Look." We don't have enough people on board and we got too many people sitting on one side. and You're going to have to move to the other side or we can't take off. I remember one time we sat there for I don't know how long because they said we just, if one more person would just move and all we're asking is that you move just till we get in the air and then you can go right back and they would not Finally, somebody begrudgingly got up so that we could take off. I mean, I, I was about ready to cut myself in half and say, here, take, take part of this and put it over there. I, I'd done everything I could do, but let's just go, all right? Let's go. Let, let's think. Let's, let's get our minds off of ourselves and our routines and our ruts uh, Brother Bill Daniels has preached here many times. Um, I I remember as a boy in my home church, he was there, and I, he and his wife were already uh, married and had kids. And, and um, uh, But I remember when we'd get to church and find out that he was preaching that night, we just knew, all right, tonight's fruit basket turnover. Because Brother Daniels, it was just his deal that when he took the pulpit, he was going to say, all right. Everybody that's on this side changed to that side. Everybody on that side changed to this side. He did it every time that he got up to preach. He made us move. And and I I suppose it was because he, he knew, you know, people, it's not the pastor, and people are going to just kind of settle in. But maybe if you're sitting looking from a different perspective, it throws you off enough that you're going to kind of, Pay attention to the service for a change. I don't know. Maybe sometimes I need to try a little fruit basket turnover and uh, and see what happens. But I'm just telling you that we, we've got to think about everybody else and especially about new ones that come in. What do we want them to become as apostolics? Rather than spending your time... Telling them they're doing things wrong. Why don't you spend your time living what's right in front of them? Well, I guess I better move on because my amens are just getting more and more frail. Let's show them how an apostolic service ought to be. Let's show them how apostolics ought to respond to preaching. Let's show them how apostolics ought to worship during the singing. Let's show them what an apostolic altar call ought to be. Let's show them what an apostolic pre-service prayer meeting ought to be. Let's show them. Well, hallelujah if we can create an appetite in the new ones that come along, they're going to have the energy to do what we older folks run out of steam doing real quickly. But let's whet their appetite for it. Let's not whet their appetite to just become stayed and reserved and calm, cool, and collected. There really ought not be anything calm, cool, and collected about an apostolic service. We don't have to be running the aisles all the time. We don't have to be jumping up and down all the time. But there should be something happening. There ought to be some kind of response coming from the pew all the time. Well, praise God. All right, so let me get back to my notes. Let me let me see if I can somehow get back to my notes and um, and and see if we can address some things here. Um, we we ended our lesson last week talking about the new birth. We had just gotten started talking about the new birth from the scripture. Uh, we had started talking about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And how Nicodemus had come to him by night. Nicodemus was a very religious man. He was a ruler. uh, Probably a very wealthy man. And yet he had come to Jesus. I believe because he realized his religion was not enough to save him. And so he came looking for more. And Jesus kind of cut to the chase. And told him what he needed to do. And that's kind of where we left off. uh, Was John chapter 3 verses 3 through 5. So we're going to. Pick that up right there in John 3, verses 3 through 5, and we're going we're gonna to read that again and and kind of go from that point to talk about some things here this morning. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5.
1: Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God.
0: And so we we talked about this, and we talked about, according to Jesus, this is the only way, the only way. Unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is the one who determines who gets to enter. Contrary to Catholic doctrine, Peter doesn't stand at the gates of heaven and decide who goes in and who doesn't. Right? How many cartoons, drawings have you seen of St. Peter at the pearly gates? Or you've heard somebody sing about St. Peter at the pearly gates? We don't believe that. There's only one who grants access to that heavenly city. It's not Peter. It's Jesus. And Jesus said right here, unless you are born of water and born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot. Jesus said, no entry." Can we put it this way? It's like showing up somewhere and the sign says, members only. You know what your membership card is? It's that you've been born of water and born of the Spirit. If you haven't been born of the water and born of the Spirit, you don't have the membership card. You don't enter this exclusive place. You've got to have the Holy Ghost. Just coming to church is not enough. You've got to be filled with the Holy Ghost. You've got to receive the Spirit of God. And when you receive it, you'll speak with other tongues. But until you receive the Holy Ghost, you've not been born of the Spirit. Therefore, you can't get in. If you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, you can't get in. That's what being born of the water is. that's not my rule the Lord made that rule I couldn't change it if I wanted to I can't pray somebody out of a supposed purgatory and get them into heaven when they weren't prepared before they died some of you don't know what I'm talking about Thank God that you don't, all right? That's another one of those doctrines out there. That there's a neutral place between heaven and hell called purgatory. And you do enough good things for the priest. It used to be you pay the priest enough money. I mean, that's literally what they did. You had to buy indulgences. You had to pay The priest money. So you have somebody that died. Then it's taken for granted. They're in purgatory. And you have to go give the priest enough money. To get them out of purgatory. Into heaven. Makes a great fundraiser. Can you imagine at every funeral having a box out front? Get them out of purgatory here. No, it, it doesn't work that way. There are only two places you can end up. And Jesus made it clear that if you are not born of water and born of the Spirit, you're not going to heaven. And that only gives you one other choice. Now, I'm just going to throw this in right now. And I haven't even made it, I don't think, past my introduction hardly. But I'm going to throw this in free of charge. If you're here today and you don't have the Holy Ghost and you've not been baptized in Jesus' name or one or the other, I'm telling you, I'd make up my mind. I'm going to do it today. If you're listening to this message online, whether live or after it's been recorded and uploaded, and you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, I'd find somebody to do it. Now, not just anybody. Because you see, the use of the name requires the authority that comes behind that name. And if the person that baptizes you has never been granted that authority by being baptized in Jesus' name themselves, then they can't pass that authority on to you. So you need to make sure that whoever baptizes you that they themselves were baptized in Jesus' name. Well, praise God. I've already had one couple ask about our trip to Israel next year if they could be baptized while we're over there in Jesus name. Now I hope they don't wait that long but if they do wait that long it's going to be a privilege to be able to step into the waters of the Jordan River and put them down in Jesus name. Well hallelujah. Now You've got to be baptized in Jesus' name and you've got to receive the Holy Ghost evidence by speaking in other tongues or you've never been born again. And if you've never been born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Jesus, by making this statement to Nicodemus, was letting Nicodemus know it's not about a reformation. It's not about a resolution. It's not about turning over a new leaf. It's about starting a new life. Did you get that? It's not turning over a new leaf. It's starting a new life. And you can only start a new life when you're born again. What Nicodemus needed and what everybody needs is a new life with a fresh start based on different principles. A different outlook. A different mindset. A different heart. So that you love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. Now, Jesus made it clear that this new birth is not a natural process. He said it's got to happen again. And it's... it's, it's got to be done in water and by the Spirit. It's a spiritual process. This is confirmed in John chapter 1, verse 13.
1: Which were born not of blood, nor of the will not of the flesh. Not of blood,
0: and not of the will of the flesh.
1: Nor of the will of nor man. Nor of the
0: will of man. But of God. But of God. Amen. Listen, this new birth is not accomplished by the will and whim of man. It's accomplished by the Spirit of God. Can I tell you this? I've heard people talk about having a child in their old age and say, well, you know, it wasn't planned. Can I tell you that there are no unplanned children in the kingdom of God? There are no mistakes in God's family. If you are in the church, it's because God chose for you to be here. In fact, I'm going to tell you, it wasn't even a matter of one day you making up your own mind. Because Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. No man can come to God except the Spirit draw him. The only reason that you have an opportunity to be saved is because God loved you enough to convict you and draw you. Now, He doesn't force you. He gives you the choice whether to obey or not. But I'm telling you that God is the one who draws you here in the first place. Don't waste this opportunity. How sad that God has drawn so many people that at some point have just turned around and walked away. Do you understand there are millions of people on the face of the earth that have never felt that drawing power? that have never had the opportunity to sit in a service and feel the touch of God even one time in their life. And God has granted you that opportunity. And every time we come together, you have the choice. You can be in the house of God. You can feel the presence of God. You can worship God. When there are millions around the globe that don't have that opportunity. But you've got that opportunity because of God's grace and mercy. God favored you enough. Oh, I want somebody to get a hold of this today. God favored you enough to bring you here today. Don't miss this opportunity. Don't lose out on this wonderful chance that you've been given. God brought you here for a purpose. God loves you enough. He has something He wants to do with your life. You've got you've to understand that God, if God didn't want you here, He wouldn't draw you here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The devil's going to do everything he can to convince you you're not wanted. The devil's going to do everything he can to convince you that the people of God don't want you and that God himself doesn't want you. The devil's going to do that, I promise you. But let me tell you, as long as you can get up and make your way to the house of God and walk through these doors, you can turn around and laugh in the devil's face and say, look, if God didn't love me, I wouldn't be here right now. The moment that God ceases to love me, the moment that God gives up on you. Listen, the, the moment He gives up on you, I, I just believe that all desire to serve God is just gone. You, you, you don't feel anything. You, you don't have a desire. You don't want to. But, but, but listen, now, now, let me just clarify. Because sometimes desires wane even among people that are drawn, all right? So just because you're not feeling a desire doesn't mean God's given up on you. Sometimes when you think there's no desire, the fact that you came anyhow says... There really is a desire or you wouldn't have come. It may not be as strong as what it was, but the desire is what got you here in the first place. We only do what we desire to do. Well, so I'm telling you the fact that you're sitting here today. The fact that you're in this church house today says to me that God still loves you, that God still cares about you, that God still has a plan for your life. Now take advantage of the opportunity He's giving you. He didn't draw you here for you to stay the same. He brought you here to make you what He wants you to be. It's not about what you are. It's about what He wants to make you. Hey, let's remember, he's the potter. We're just clay. I mean, you, you, if you ever walk into a a real pottery shop, you see these big lumps of clay there. They just don't look like a whole lot. Now, I'm telling you, when I look at a lump of clay, it just looks like mud to me. I don't see anything in it. But I've literally watched potters take that lump of clay, put it on a wheel, get that wheel to spinning, and, and take his thumb. It was the most amazing. It was almost almost like magic if you've ever seen it. If you've ever watched a potter do it on the wheel, he, he could take his thumb and press into the middle of that and and use his hand and it's like he's pulling this 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 jar or whatever just pulling it up out of the mud it is the most amazing process to watch it happen and and we've got to think the bible says that's what we are we're just that lump of clay but see there's a reason why you're on the wheel today Because the potter sees something more than just a lump of clay on a wheel. Now sometimes he has to take that lump of clay and mash it back down. Because it's not responding the way it needs to. And sometimes he's got to put some more water into it. That's why from time to time, Brother Goff, we're going to shed some tears. Because we got to add a little water to this clay to make it more pliable. So God's going to let us walk through some dark valleys and walk through some difficult times because He wants the tears to flow because that water makes us more pliable in the hands of the potter. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost right now. Listen to me. God doesn't forsake you when you're walking through the difficult times. God's making you in those times. God's molding you in those dark hours. God's doing something with you. He had not abandoned you. That's when He's working on you. Hallelujah.
1: Hallelujah. Yes, sir. I, I, I. Hallelujah.
0: And even when the potter finishes on that wheel, the vessel's not finished. He's got to do something else. That vessel's got to go into the fire. It's going to have to sustain sustain some heat. Because that's what's going to make it last. our last trip to Israel we were standing in the ancient city of Hazor and, and this was one of the cities that Joshua and the children of Israel burned with fire and we're standing there and they're pointing out to us this layer because it was common back in those days for them to make mud bricks but there's a reason why some of the mud bricks are standing today and it's because the fire actually solidified those bricks and has caused them to stand for hundreds of years where other mud bricks have dissolved and are gone. But those that have been through the fire are still standing. And I'm telling you today that just because you're feeling the fire doesn't mean that the world is wrong. That everything's bad. You may be feeling the fire because the potter likes what he sees. And he wants to solidify this vessel a little bit. He's going to come, what does the song say, and take us through the fire again. He's going to keep us through the fire. He's going to take care of us through these times. This is not a time to feel sorry for ourselves. It's a time to square our shoulders back and say, you know what? God must love me. Look, the worst trial that ever came on anybody, as far as I know, came on the man Job. And do you know why it came on Job? It came on Job because God was proud of him. Well, that's true. The devil's wandering around, and God said, Hey, have you noticed Job? Have you looked at Job lately? devil said, yeah, yeah, you take away his belongings and he's not going to be near the man you think he is. God said, try it. Just don't touch him. So the devil took everything, all of his possessions. He went from wealth to poverty in one day. He also lost all of his children at the same moment. Now, just losing his possessions was bad enough But I cannot imagine a tragedy worse than losing all of your children in one moment. But Job did. And rather than Job feeling sorry for himself and saying, God must hate me or this wouldn't happen. Job rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell on his face. And worshipped. and He said, I came into this world with nothing. It looks like I'm going out with nothing. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, that didn't make the devil too happy. So he goes back to God. And God said, hey, what you think about Job? Now, I'm telling you, God is proud of Job. We think because we're having trials and tribulations, God, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? But Job was going through all of this because God was bragging on him. So the devil said, well, if I could touch his body, he'll change. God said, have at it, just don't take his life. And still, in all this, Job sinned not, neither charged God foolishly. Now, Job had lots of questions. At least five times in the book of Job, believe it or not, he asked God why. I know people have been trained all their life. Don't ever ask God why. Don't ever ask God why. Well, I want to challenge you. Go back and read the book of Job. Job asked God why. Why? But he didn't charge God foolishly. That's what we got to be careful of. I think we can ask why as long as we're not making an accusation against God that he's doing something wrong. If we just want to know that now God didn't answer him but he asked. Even when God appeared in the whirlwind he didn't tell Job why. He just said, where were you? When I was making the world. you really going to ask me? Come on, Job. You can do better than this. Go pray for your friends and I'll fix all this. I mean, that's what happened. Those are not the exact words, but that's what happened. So I'm telling you, that just because you're in the fire, don't let the devil convince you that it's there because God's mad at you or God hates you or you've done something wrong. The Bible says of Job before this process ever began that he was perfect. The inspired word of God called him perfect. We often say there's no perfect man ever lived except Jesus Christ. But the Bible called Job perfect. Before anything happened. And yet, look at all that he went through. I submit to you today that we should not look at our trials and troubles and tribulations as though this is some curse from God. Sometimes it's God's way of saying, I love you, and I'm just wanting to solidify you. You're going to go through the fire. It's going to burn. It's going to hurt. But when you come out, you'll be able to stand the tests of time. Well, hallelujah. Oh, what a wonderful Savior we serve! What a great God He is. Just the fact that He loves us is mind-boggling. But to think how much He loves us and how much He cares about us and how often He just steps in and does things for our benefit. How did I get on all that? Ah. Oh, I was talking about God doesn't have any unwanted children. Hallelujah. That's true. He doesn't. Every child of God he chose. In fact, the apostle Paul put it this way we we we've been adopted. Do you know what that means? That means God went looking for us when we were not part of his family. I know we've got some folks here in the congregation that have been adopted and I'm not saying this for your sakes, so please don't think I'm aiming this at you. Um, But I have seen in time past where where children that were adopted sometimes this this feeling overwhelms them that my parents didn't want me. And and that's why I had to be adopted. But there's another side to that, that at some point, I, I, I hope every adopted child realizes, is the biological parents may have made some choices. But you had someone who, you, you're, you're not an accident, You're not unplanned. You're not unwanted. Somebody saw you and said, I want this one. Somebody loved you enough when they didn't have to. And church, that's the way... Every one of us are in the kingdom of God. None of us belong here. We are not the descendants of Abraham physically. We don't belong here. We're not a part of that family. But do you know what God did? He went looking for us. And He adopted us into his family he brought us into the family of God well hallelujah Peter said in time past you were not a people but now but now Things are different. Well, hallelujah. Get for me. Get for me. This is not in the notes. Get for me. I've, I've talked a lot and haven't used nearly enough scripture here today. This is not like me. Um, get for me, 1 Peter chapter 2. And we most of us know or at least are familiar with verse 9. We'll read verse 9, but I want to... I want you to hear verse 10 as well. So so read for us 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9.
1: But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light.
0: Right, now, 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 stay right there at verse 9 for just a minute. Stay right there at verse 9. You're a... You've been chosen. He picked you. He put you on His team. He brought you into His family. And made you a royal priesthood, a holy nation a peculiar people. Which that word peculiar does not mean strange or odd. It means unique to Him. You alone are His people. You're part of an elite few that God loved enough to bring on board. Well, hallelujah. And He did it that you'd show forth the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now read verse 10. Which in times, which in time, time past,
1: past, were not a people, were
0: not a people,
1: but are now, but the, people are of now God. the people of God. Which had not obtained which mercy, had
0: not obtained mercy, but now,
1: but now have, obtained, have mercy.
0: obtained mercy. Hallelujah! That's who we are, children of God. That's the way we need to see ourselves. God went out and found us. God chose us. God picked us. I know that we've got some folks here that, that you come from from a generation or more of, of apostolics and that's wonderful. I, I didn't. I didn't have a father or a grandfather or a great-grandfather that was living for God. I don't belong in the kingdom of God by my own birthright. But God looked down on a little 12-year-old boy that had nobody else in his household living for God. And God said, I want that boy. I want that boy. He chose me. I was... I was not a part of His people. But now, I'm a part of the people of God. I was living without mercy. But now, I've found mercy. Oh, hallelujah. Church, do you understand the wonderful privilege of living for God? And look, even those that are raised in the church, somewhere back in your family's history, somebody was not living for God. And God picked somebody. My wife's great-grandmother was baptized in Jesus' name and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. During a circuit-riding preacher stop in their little community in northeast Texas. Circuit-riding, that doesn't mean anything. i got to remember, i got young people here too. Those terms don't mean anything to you. That's what they used to call a lot of the preachers. They didn't, pastor a church they rode a circuit they, they traveled from city to city and they'd preach revivals and they'd see people pray through and they'd baptize people and then they'd move on to another city and do the same thing in the next city and in the next city and the next city they rode a circuit and then sometimes they'd start back through that circuit again and come back around and and um, there was one of those preachers that stopped in the little community of McLeod Texas My wife's great-grandmother was baptized in Jesus' name and received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And to think that now we've got grandchildren. Think about how many generations that is of apostolic heritage on my wife's side. Not on mine, but on my wife's side. How many generations of apostolic heritage that is. But still, thank God, That circuit riding preacher stopped through McLeod, Texas. Yes. 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 And found there a woman that was hungry. Amen. And God called her out of darkness into his marvelous light. Yes. She passed that on to her daughter who passed it on. The next generation. Thankfully, they passed it on to my wife. I'm overwhelmed today, saints of God, thinking of the goodness of God, that He would be so merciful to find us. And to save us. Who are we? Amen. Yes. But he's given you this wonderful opportunity. Hallelujah. He's given you this great privilege. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He's called you. He's adopted you. He's brought you into his family. No wonder the apostle Paul said that this is our reasonable service. It's just reasonable to live for God. When you think of what he's done for us. Why don't we raise our hands and love him. I've let this time get away today. Let's love him. 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 him. Come on. Let's love him, everybody. Aren't you thankful that he found you? Aren't you thankful that he loved you? Aren't you thankful that he chose you? He didn't have to, we didn't deserve it. Gracious God, oh, what a loving Savior. reach out to him let's reach out to him